At Gospel Community Church, our mission is to know the Bible, share life with others, and bring hope to our city and the world. You're listening to the Gospel Community Church Sermons Podcast, where we go through books of the Bible, verse by verse and line by line, to hear the truth that God's Word has to encourage, discipline, and bless us in our daily lives. Uh, if we haven't met, my name is Kurt McDonald. I'm one of the pastors here at the church, and this morning it is my great privilege to bring to you God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he add his blessing to it. Last week uh, in our study, what we saw uh, is that God solved a problem uh, that our two main characters didn't know existed. So our two main characters are Esther. Uh, she is the, the beautiful uh, young Jewish woman that has been taken into the harem of the evil king. The, the second main character is, uh, is Mordecai. He is Esther's cousin, uh, but she, he's actually adopted Esther because she was an, an orphan. Uh, and so Mordecai is Esther's adopted father. And so what, what is happening in the text is that there is a huge problem. The huge problem is this. Haman and the king have sent out a decree that all Jewish people should be killed on a particular date. Not only killed, but all of their property taken. And so this is the tension that is in the text uh, that, that we're seeing. But there was another problem that they didn't even know existed, which was this. There's two feasts. You remember the two feasts? Esther asked the king to come to the feast, and, and the king is at the feast, and he says, Esther, what, what do you need? I'll, I'll give you whatever your request is up to half my kingdom. And she says, well, come to a second feast. And so we saw that, that feast last week, and we're leading up to seeing the second feast this week. But in between the two feasts, here's what happens. Haman comes walking out, and there's Mordecai. Does Mordecai bow like he's supposed to? No, Mordecai does not bow like he's supposed to. And because he doesn't bow, Haman is not only satisfied with killing all of the Jewish people, he wants to kill Mordecai, and he wants to kill Mordecai in a very public way, that very public way being impaling him on a pole that is 75 feet tall. And so as Haman is on the way to ask the king for the death of Mordecai, what happens? Well, God solves a problem that they didn't know existed because God sovereignly kept the king awake. Not only did he sovereignly keep the king awake, but the king asked for the royal records to be brought in. And he says, read me those royal records. And so they start reading the king, the royal records. And lo and behold, Mordecai had actually saved the king's life and had not been rewarded. And so as Haman enters into the king's palace, the king asks Haman to honor Mordecai. I mean, just, just a, a crazy timing of how God worked all of that together. And so that is how God solved that problem. And so at this point in our story, Mordecai is no longer in danger. But listen, Esther is still in danger. The reason that Esther is still in danger is because she is going to a banquet with a very dangerous king. 
Here's what I mean. Uh, I, I did some digging this week into uh, the history of this king, Xerxes, or as, uh, as it's called in Esther, King Ahasuerus. It's the same king. Uh, king, king Xerxes and King Ahasuerus is the same guy. And so there's a lot of uh, extra biblical writings or historical writings on this particular king. Uh, and it's written by a man named Herodotus. You can go read it yourself. And Herodotus records this story for us. Here's the story that Herodotus records about this king that we're talking about. There was a man, a very wealthy man, and he had five sons. And all five of those sons were in the military. And so this very wealthy man with his five sons who were all in the military uh, gets invited to a banquet or a feast with the king. And, and this wealthy man says, King, I want to pay into your treasuries. And, and the king says, Nope, I'm actually going to pay into your treasury. Again, the king showing off and, and showing off his wealth. Well, the wealthy man decides because the king is such in a generous mood, he's going to make a request of the king. And here is this man's request. All five of his sons are in the military. And so he asks for the oldest son to be released from his military duty so that at least there's one son to carry on the family name. This enraged Xerxes. This enraged King Ahasuerus, and he called for the oldest son, had him cut in two, placed one half on this side of the road, placed the other half on this side of the road, and he marched his entire army to battle down the road with either side of the man's oldest son on the road. This is a very dangerous king. This is a very vicious king. And so while we have some tension released from uh, Mordecai, Esther is now in the hot seat. And keep in mind, with this dangerous king, what is she going to this banquet to do? Well, she's going into this banquet to do a couple of things. First, Esther is going to ask this evil, wicked king to reverse an irreversible law. Right? Once, once it's written into law that all the Jewish people should be killed on this particular day, you don't reverse the law. So she is going to ask him to reverse an irreversible law. Second, she is going to ask him, the king, to side with her instead of Haman, who is the second most powerful man in all the empire. She wants the king to take her side instead of his. Third, she is going to admit that she has been hiding her Jewish ethnicity for five years. Not only that, keep in mind how this king views women. Here's this woman, right? She is one of many in his harem. What did he do with the last one? Well, he just got rid of her. So the, the most likely outcome Pretend, okay, pretend with me that we don't know what actually happens. The most likely outcome of this banquet is that Esther is going to be either banished or killed. Why? Again, because she's asking him to reverse a law that, that it's irreversible. She's going to ask him to side with her instead of the, the second most powerful man in all of the empire. And this king has a terrible view of women. Oh yeah, and she's been hiding her Jewish ethnicity. This situation does not look good at all. It's, it's almost like if you didn't know the ending, you would come to the conclusion that this is going to turn out really, really bad. I wonder if, if you've ever been in that type of situation before where you, you, you're looking at the evidence and you're thinking to yourself, this ain't going to go good. 
I mean, this, this is not gonna, this is not gonna end well at all. Based on everything that I know, this is not going to go good. Maybe uh, you, you picked up your phone and you looked at the caller ID and that person was calling you and you knew that you had to take that call and you thought to yourself, this is not gonna go good. You, your kids are still playing at the birthday party, they're having the time of their life and you have to go tell them it's time to go. This is not gonna go good. Or you have to have that conversation with your spouse. And you think to yourself, this is not going to go well. Well, the truth is, church family, our God can take even the darkest situation and turn it around. No matter what it is, God can turn it around. No matter how broken it is, no matter how messed up it is, no matter how big the issue, no matter how deep the hole that you have dug yourself in or somebody else has dug for you, God can turn it around. A tyrannical king, no problem. God can turn that around. An evil plot to kill all of God's people, no problem. God can turn that around. Certain death, no problem. God can turn that around. In the same way, difficult marriage, God can turn it around. Rebellious children, God can turn it around. Crippling addiction, God can turn it around. Health issues, insane amount of debt, painful family relationships, God can turn it around. This is his track record. This is what God has done time and time again all throughout the Old Testament, taking impossible, difficult situations and turning them around. Even all throughout the New Testament, we see Jesus do this time and time again, taking difficult situations and turning them around. When it looks like the outcome is certain and the outcome is bad, God can step into that situation and turn the outcome around to work it out for our good and for his glory. You see, Jesus was at this this party. He was at this wedding in Canada, do you remember? And they ran out of what? They ran out of wine. And so the, the conclusion is this family is now going to be publicly shamed because they ran out of wine. Yet Jesus steps in and he turns that situation around and turns water into wine. What about the crippled man who was sitting by the pool of Bethesda and he was at the end of his life. He had been crippled all of his life and, and all evidence, all signs point to the certainty that this man is going to die a cripple. Yet Jesus heals him. Or what about the woman that was caught in adultery and the rules demanded that she be stoned to death and the outcome was certain this woman was going to die yet jesus lifts her up and he forgives her of her sin or what about the man who was born blind he had been blind all his life he will certainly remain that way until he dies but jesus turned his life around and gave him sight or what about lazarus who was in the tomb for days there's lazarus i mean how many how many of us know anybody who's gone into the grave and come back out i mean this if lazarus goes in he's going to stay there right that's the certain outcome of it unless jesus steps in and he did and he turned that situation around and he called lazarus out of the tomb or how about the disciples after the death of jesus they were they were scared they were fleeing they were running away there was no way that a massive movement called christianity which we are a part of today was ever going to come through these 12 scared defeated men yet jesus steps in and turns it around This is his way. This is what God does time and time again. And at the heart of all of this, at the heart of all of God reversing things and turning things around is the cross. The cross is the great reversal. It is the greatest turnaround. You see, it looked, the cross looked like certain defeat. The cross looked like that if there was a Messiah and that this man was him, well, he was certainly dead. And so Satan had won, death had won, but Jesus was resurrected from the dead 
dead. And God the Father turns the whole thing around to make Jesus' death, proving that he is the Messiah so that we might one day live with him. If you're taking notes, I have one main point today. Here it is. No matter how sure we are of the outcome, God can turn it around. No matter how certain we are of the outcome, you're looking at the situation, you're saying, based on everything that I know, based on the evidence, I mean, this is going to turn out bad. This is not going to go good. God, in his sovereign power, steps into those type of situations and turns that certain outcome that we think is going to play out, he can turn it around. He can reverse it. This is the power of the sovereign God in which we serve. Again, if you didn't know the end of the story, that's exactly what you would say about this banquet. You would look at this banquet and go, this ain't going to go good for Esther. Do you know that king? Do, do you know how he feels about his trusted advisor, Haman? Do you know how he treats women? This is not going to go good for Esther. Yet God steps in and turns it around. Well, what exactly do I mean God turns things around? What do I mean by that? Do I mean that if you have a, an empty bank account, if you have enough faith, God will turn it around and fill it right up? Do, do I mean that, that it, it, every time you make a request, when the situation looks grim, God is going to say yes, and he'll just turn it right around as long as you have enough faith? Well, certainly not. Here's what I mean. God can alter any outcome to be an opportunity for your good and for his glory. Meaning you're looking at Haman and, and, and this evil king and you're thinking to yourself, there's no way God can use them for his glory. There's no way God can use this evil pagan king, this evil pagan prime minister Haman. There's no way God can use them for Esther's good and ultimately for his glory. There's no way. But God steps in and says, yes way. I, I absolutely can use even these evil men for the good of my people and for my glory. Romans 8, 28 says this, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Church family, never, ever, ever, ever grow callous of this verse. We, we've read it a thousand times. We've looked at it a thousand times, but the moment that you let this verse grow callous on your heart, you are down a very dangerous road. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for the good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Amen. Amen, amen. Well, we got to get to the text. Y'all want to get into the text today? Go ahead and get the, the text in front of you. Open up God's Word if you're going to pull it up on your smartphone or however you're going to look at the text. But I want you to have the text in front of you so that you can make sure I'm not making it up as I go. We're going to be in Esther chapter 7, and I'm going to start in verse 1. It says this, So the king and Haman went into the feast with Esther, and on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, what is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted to you, and what is your request, even to the half of the kingdom? It shall be fulfilled. Again, this is now the third time that he's asked. He asked the first time, and she said, come to the banquet. At the first banquet, he asked again, and her request, she says, come to a second banquet. So this is now the third time that the king has asked what her request is and what her wish is. I mean, you got to know the king at this point is very curious, right? He's, he's dying to know what her request is. And, and if you know this king and you know the story, 
he, he probably thinks it's some kind of trinket that she wants. He, he probably thinks, you know, maybe she, she's going to ask for fine jewelry or uh, maybe she's been watching, uh, you know, uh, HGTV Persian edition and, and she wants to, you know, take out some walls in the palace to really open up the space or, you know, he, he's got to think it's, it's maybe some more servants or, you know, something uh, to that effect. It, but, but she doesn't, uh, she has not yet revealed what it is. She's prepared though. Again, this is the third time that the king has asked and she knows exactly what it is that she wants to say because there's, there's two things. He says, look, look back at it. He says, what is your wish and what is your request? So it's like one thing, but kind of two. And again, he throws out this even up to half of my kingdom Again, that's, uh, that's just kind of a thing that they said. He's really not going to give her half the kingdom. It's just kind of, you know, fancy, fancy talk from, from the king. Now, this is the moment. I mean, after he says, what is your wish? What is your request? If you really understand what's happening in the story, and again, if you didn't know the end, you, you really would kind of be doing like this, you know, because she's going to make the request and what we expect to see is the king fly off the handle and banish her or call for his guards to come kill her. Unless God is going to change the outcome. Look at verses 3 and 4. Then Queen Esther answered, If I found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted for my wish and my people for my request. Again, she had thought in advance of exactly what she was going to say and how she was going to say it. Let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we have been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss of the king. What is so incredible is that Esther knows how to talk to this king. Look, look, I mean, look how, if it pleased the king, you know, if, if I find favor in your sight, O king, she, she's using all of the royal language. She's kind of buttering the king up. You know, this, really, this is all about you, king, anyway, because, you know, you're just the greatest, right? Uh, so she, she knows exactly how to talk to him. But again, fearlessly, she steps in and she identifies herself with her people, the Jewish people, and identifies herself as a child of God. She's talking about the edict that went out to kill all of the Jewish people, and she's including herself in with her people's plight. And so th this puts her in a very, very dangerous situation. And so before we move on, here's what I want you to see. You know how God usually turns things around? Listen, God can turn things around through massive um, crazy, uh, insane miracles from heaven. Amen? We, we've seen God do that all throughout the scriptures, all throughout the Old Testament, all throughout the New Testament. Uh, all miraculous miracles from heaven, God uses those to literally turn things around when it looks like the outcome is set and sure, God steps in, miraculous miracle, you know, fire from heaven, whatever, and turns things around. Is that what's happening here? That's not what's happening here at all. 
The name of God is never mentioned in all of the book of Esther. There are no angels. There are no miraculous miracles from heaven. Here's what I want you to see. God turns things around through the everyday faithfulness of ordinary life. God usually, can God do miracles? Yes. Does he? Yes. But the way God usually operates to turn things around when the outcome is set and it looks like it's going to be bad, God uses the everyday faithfulness of ordinary life. Esther was in the right place at the right time, and in her courage and in her faith, she just stepped in and did what needed to be done. And God honored that simple faithfulness by changing the heart of this king. Now, verse 4 is kind of confusing. And, and the commentators go back and forth. And again, um, there's a lot that the book of Esther doesn't say. So in just a moment, the king is going to be enraged. And it doesn't exactly spell out to us why the king is enraged. In just a moment, Haman is going to be absolutely terrified, but it doesn't exactly lay out for us why Haman is terrified and why the king is so angry. So what we have to do is kind of make uh, some guesses about why the king is enraged and why Haman is terrified from what this says. Look at verse 4 again. It says, For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, killed, and annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women... I would not have been silent, for our affliction is not compared with the loss to the king. And so here's what may be happening. Does the king think that the edict that he and Haman put together was only to enslave the Jews, but Haman's true plot was to kill all of the Jews, and he has duped the king? That's what I think. I'm not sure, because the text isn't clear. But that's what I think is happening. I think as they were drinking wine and making the edict and all sorts of things, he, Haman gives the king money because of this rebellious people and, and we're going we're gonna to get rid of them. He sold them. That, that, that word, look at verse 4, for we have been sold. So maybe the king is thinking, oh, th these people are just going to be enslaved. Again, this is not a good king. This is not a king who thinks that even like mass murder is bad, right? But it seems like Haman has tricked the king into believing that he only wanted to enslave the Jewish people when in reality, Haman is seeking to exterminate the Jewish people and that is why he is enraged. Again, another question that is raised is, is the loss to the king, so look at the end of verse four, if we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent for our affliction is not compared with the loss to the king. What is the loss? What is the king losing? Well, Again, the text is not necessarily clear. Is the loss to the king his precious time? Like, sorry to make you come to these feasts and bother you. Um, or is the loss to the king referring to the bribe money Haman had promised? Or is it both? The text isn't clear, but here is what is clear. Whatever the full meaning is, she has sided herself with the king and made it clear that someone wants the queen dead. That's clear. She has put herself on the side of the king and has told the king, somebody wants the queen dead. And so while this king does not necessarily honor women like God calls us to, he views them as objects, but this king does not want anybody messing with his objects. So 
verse 5. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he and where is he who has dared to do this? Now, what amazing restraint from Esther not to go, You, you big dummy. Your name is on the edict that you and your buddy signed. And so now what are you going to do about it? She's a lot more smooth than that. (laughs) She's a lot more wise. She's a lot more poised than that, than to come out and to blame the king. I mean, even look again back at verses 3 and 4. You see how she words that? You see how she puts that together? Nowhere in verses 3 and 4 does she blame the king. She leaves the blame off of the king. And when King Ahasuerus, who apparently has no idea what's going on. Now, again, quickly look back at verses 3 and 4. She says, I and my people to be destroyed, killed, and annihilated. If you were with us when we looked at the edict that, they, that got sent out, that's the exact wording from the edict. So apparently, Haman picks up on it. Haman picks up on oh no, the, the king's wife is Jewish and I was a part of this edict and now uh, this is really bad for me. Haman picks up on it. Apparently the king has had a little bit more wine than Haman because he has no idea what's going on. This is why King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, who is he and who has dared to do this thing? Now, apparently the king has no idea what Esther is talking about. Here's another thought. Or Maybe he does know what Esther is talking about, and upon discovering that the queen is Jewish, he is trying to distance himself from the edict that his signature is on. We're not sure, but look at verse 6. And Esther said, A foe and an enemy, this wicked Haman. Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. So she, like, just comes out swinging. She attacks his character. She attacks his allegiance to the kingdom. I mean, she, again, she's drawing a line in the sand. What's so interesting, look back at verse 1 in the text. Look at the, look at the two that are paired together. The two that are paired together are, so the king and Haman went to the feast with Esther. The pair is the king and Haman. They're going to the feast. But what Esther just did is she drew a line in the sand and said, I'm with the king over here. And where's Haman? Well, Haman's over here trying to kill the queen. And so she has drawn a line in the sand. And again, pretend that you don't know the end of the story. The most likely outcome, knowing this king, would be to banish or kill Esther. But God changes the hearts of kings. Look at verse 7. And the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking. Now, look, you know this guy is really mad and really fired up if he leaves his wine. If we know anything about this king, all he's ever doing is like feasting, uh, drinking wine, or taking other people's advice. That's pretty much all this guy does. Or he's with his harem. And the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. Again, Esther is a book that leaves us asking a ton of questions. Why does the king get up and go into the garden? Well, it doesn't necessarily 
tell us, we, we can make some assumptions. Uh, maybe he was just so enraged he had to like leave the room. It kind of doesn't really seem like this king. Uh, maybe, maybe, he was, maybe he was going out to find other advisors to tell him what to do. That seems more like our king, more like this king, uh, but we're really not sure. But here's what I think. In all likelihood, he's trying to figure out how to get out of this. <laughs> so this king is now stuck on the horns of a dilemma. He doesn't want either one. Okay, so look, look at it this way. If he kills his queen because she's Jewish, that really doesn't look good for the king, right? Why'd you kill the, like, this was your favorite one. She won the, the contest and you put the crown on her head in front of all the people and then you just kill her because she's Jewish. That doesn't look very good for the king. Or what about if he sides and decides to kill Haman? Well, he's going to kill Haman. Why? Well, because he sent out this edict. Sorry, king, your signature's on the edict. E either way, the king looks like a fool, so he can't just kill Haman, and he can't just kill Esther, but he knows he's got to do something. I think he doesn't know what to do, and he storms out because he's freaking out. And then, look what, look what happens next. I think he comes back in, not knowing exactly what he's going to do, but a situation presents itself. What's Haman doing? Well, Haman is begging for his life. Now, remember that this king's harem is very, very important to him. Again, if you go back and read Herodotus, the historian that's writing about him, uh, again, an extra biblical source, but as he's writing about this king, it says that at the end of uh, King Xerxes' reign, he could barely get anything done in his kingdom because he was so consumed and concerned and spending so much time with his harem. So his harem is surrounded by eunuchs. Okay, I won't go into that, but... Why? Because this king does not want you around his women. He doesn't want you messing with them. He don't want you, like, that's, that's a big no-no. And so when he enters back in, there's Haman begging Queen Esther, falling on the couch that she's laying on, grasping at her, begging for his life. And all of a sudden, now the king has a reason, the reason that he was looking for. And Verse 8, and the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, will he even assault the queen in my presence in my own house? Again, is, do, do you think Haman at this point in the story is making an advance on Esther? Come on. Not, no, he's not. But the king is able to manipulate this situation to get out of the dilemma that he's in. As the words left his mouth, they covered Haman's face. Apparently, the king did not have to order or demand that they come and take him away. His servants were just, hey man, we're picking up what you're putting down. You're, you're mad at this guy, we're, you know, bag over the head. And, and he is absolutely out the door. What is so incredible, I, I want you guys to see this. This is a, an insane turnaround. This is, this is a crazy reversal of, if you're looking at the situation without knowing the end, you think that Esther is going to be banished. You think that, you know, the good old boys club, they're going to stick together. The king is going to stick with Haman, his trusted advisor. Esther gets banished or killed. But in an amazing reversal, it's flipped on its head. It's, it's absolutely turned around. You see, Mordecai would not fall at the feet of Haman and now Haman is falling at the feet of Esther. 
This is an, this is an insane turnaround. It's, it's absolutely turned around. Look back at chapter 6, verse 13. Do you remember chapter 6, verse 13, when, when Haman is talking with his wife and all of his wise counsel? Do you remember the eerie prediction that they gave? And Haman told his wife Zeresh all, and all of his friends everything that had happened to him. Then the wise man and his wife Zeresh said to him, if Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him and as the king enters into the banquet there is Haman falling before Esther not only is she Jewish but she is also a woman you see what's happening here in this text is this great turnaround here is this man Haman who is driven by hatred for Jewish people and he is driven by receiving honor and now he is groveling at the feet of a Jewish person shaming himself and not receiving honor this is an amazing turnaround this is this is an amazing reversal that God does. Look at verses 9 and 10. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs and attendants of the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king? If, you, if the king was unsure about what he was going to do with Haman, Harbona's little, little comment here, oh, remember Mordecai, the one that saved your life? Whose word saved the king is standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high or 75 feet tall. And the king said, Hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. Remember, this king does very little without somebody telling him what to do. Time and time again, people keep throwing out you know, advice to the king and he just goes with it. Well, apparently Harbona is in the right place at the right time. Talk about an amazing, unexpected reversal. This guy who loved to be honored, the man who was all about honor and status, was killed in the most shameful way and for all to see. You see, death stole everything from Haman because everything he had built was in and of this world. Again, I said it at the beginning and I'll say it again. No matter how sure we are of the outcome, God can turn it around. Again, just... Think about your own life, church family. Think about your own life, the path that you were headed down, the direction that you were headed in, and God turned it around. Any understanding of the holiness of God and any understanding of our sinfulness should determine our outcome. If you're looking and understanding the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man, the certain outcome for us should be that we are banished and sent away from God. He's too holy. He's too good. He's too righteous. And we are too lowly and sinful. Yet God steps in and turns it around. And he loves us and he saves us and he cares for us and he brings us into his family and he calls us blessed and he calls us justified. He sanctifies us and one day he is coming back to ultimately glorify us. Let me just remind you from Ephesians 2, 1 through 5, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the sons of disobedience, among whom we all, who's that? All, is that everybody in this room this morning? That's everybody in this room, among whom we all once lived in the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and we by nature are children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Stop right there. Don't read it yet. If that's us, what is our outcome? 
What comes next for us if we are dead and children of wrath? Well, more death and we continue to be children of wrath until God returns and fully and completely pours out his wrath upon us. Verse four now, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love in which he loved us, even when we were dead in our own trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Your outcome should have been continued death, continued destruction, continued separation from God, yet he sins Jesus on the greatest rescue mission that ever was so that the final outcome for us is turned around. Yeah. How about 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11? Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Anybody fully and completely righteous in the sight of God this morning? Hey, your pastor's not, <laughs> right? Nobody in this room is. So if that is the case, if we are unrighteous, what do we not get to inherit? The kingdom of God. We don't get to inherit the kingdom of God. That's the outcome. That if you're looking at the evidence, that's what this says. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be, be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. Listen, I'm on that list. I'm on that list. I, I mean, we're in church. We're supposed to be honest, right? Are you honest enough with yourself to say, hey, I'm somewhere on that list? Well, then we don't get to inherit the kingdom of God. Unless we keep on reading. You want me to keep on reading? Because what it says next is, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And by the spirit of God, this is who we are now justified in Christ, welcomed in. So the pathway that we were on, the certainty of the wrath of God coming for us, our spiritual death is turned around by God himself because he is the God of great reversals, just like we saw in our story today. God has turned around our ultimate destiny, then surely he is controlling the outcome of our day-to-day -day situations. If God has turned around our ultimate destiny, which is our ultimate destiny was to be separated from God forever because of the, the sin of Adam that was inherited uh, and brought into the whole world and we are born sinners by nature and choice, then what should have happened is we should have stayed eternally separated from God. That's our right and just punishment for what we have done. Yet God is the God of great reversals. He's the God who turns things around. So he, so he sends Jesus to turn it around for us by his work on the cross. And so if God has turned around our ultimate destiny, don't you think that God is at work in the day-to-day -day life to turn around even difficult situations that we think are impossible? Well, of course he is. Of course he is. Well, I know that y'all are thinking about the potluck and less about the sermon, so let me move to the application and we'll close. Number one, if God can and does alter the outcome for our good and for his glory, then we should repent of pessimism. We should repent of pessimism. If God is ultimately working all things together for our good and for his glory, then we should repent of pessimism. Church family, I wonder if you're anything like me. When I hear somebody complaining and, and being really pessimistic, you know what that does for me? It lets me know that this is a safe place for me to complain and whine about things. And so it opens up the door when you're pessimistic about what God is doing in your life and 
then it opens up the door for that other person to be pessimistic and you, both of you guys just get on that train of pessimism and, and you're just, you know, well, I just don't know what's going to happen. I mean, I don't have what she's got. And I, what about this? And you just start feeding into that. But if we truly believe that in every situation, in all things that God is working all of it together for our good, meaning even the painful things, even the difficult things, even when we feel alone, even when we feel like we've been left out, God is using even that for our good to grow us spiritually, to mature us up so that we might endure through it, to grow us up so that we might develop in our spiritual growth and so that God ultimately gets glory. So we need to repent of pessimism. Stop being a pessimist, right? I'm, I'm so guilty of this. Not, not only, so I, I used to like to say, you know, I'm not a pessimist, I'm not an optimist, I'm a realist. Well, whatever, that, that's dumb. We need, to, we, need to be, we need to be biblical optimists. We need to be Christian optimists, knowing that God's at work. Number two, if God can and does alter the outcome for our good and for his glory, we should joyfully encourage one another. So that same scenario where that, that person opens up the pessimism door, right? They just, they kick the door open to pessimism. All the, all the negative stuff comes flowing out. What do you do? do? Do you kick open your door too and just let it all, you know, all the junk come out? Or in that conversation, do you remind that person that God loves them, that God is working even this situation they're complaining about for their good and for his glory? Listen, nobody in this room this morning is over-encouraged. Nobody in this room this morning is over-encouraged. Nobody in here this morning would say, nope, stop right there. I don't need to be encouraged. I'm, I'm full up on encouragement. I'm all good. Everybody in this room this morning who is truly understanding what we're called to, which is a life of sacrifice, that's what, that's what the scripture calls us to, anybody who understands that we're called to put the needs of others before our own, anybody who's truly trying to walk and live out the Christian life is in need of a ton of encouragement. We need to encourage one another. Third and last, if God can and does alter the outcome for our good and for his glory, focus on faithfulness, not earthly success. What I mean to say there is, God's in control of the outcome. So no matter what happened at that banquet with Esther, God was calling Esther to be faithful. God was calling Esther to step up and identify with her people and make the request. That's it. Esther was not responsible for changing the heart of the king. Was she wise? Did she plan? Absolutely. She planned, she was wise, she was poised, and all of that is great. But the ultimate outcome is in the hands of God. And so the call on our lives is not to fix the outcome. We can't fix the outcome, church family. It's out of our hands. The ultimate outcome is in the hands of God. And so what we are called to do is to be faithful, is to be faithful with what he has called us to do. Now, listen, I don't know what God has ultimately called you to do, the, the singular specific thing, but I do know a lot of things that he has called you to do. Uh, love one another, read your Bible, serve your local church, give, right? Th these are, uh, uh, raise your children in the way that they should go, pour out yourself for your spouse. Th that goes for everybody. So let's be faithful in those things and, and let God be in charge of the outcome. In a book about God's sovereignty, the book of Esther, we must keep circling back around to these thoughts 
these thoughts that we've been repeating throughout this series. Thoughts like we can calm down because this is not God's first rodeo. Thoughts like we can rest in the fact that God is not freaking out about what you're freaking out about. We need to keep circling back to these thoughts. And so I close with these questions. What anxieties have you carried in this morning? What anxieties have you carried in? What, what fears are controlling your heart? Last thought. No matter how bad we think it is, through the power of the gospel, he is making all things new. Let's pray. Oh God, that we would rest in the fact that you are making all things new, that one day you will come and ultimately set all things right. God, I pray for those of us who are overwhelmed and overcome with anxiety, that some of our hearts are being captured by fears, fears of man, fears of the future. Lord, will we look to this story this morning and may our hearts be encouraged by the fact that you are in control of the outcome. You are calling us to walk in faithfulness and you'll handle the rest. May that be so of the people of Gospel Community Church. We ask all these things in the mighty and powerful name of Jesus. Thanks for listening. Feel free to share the contents of this podcast, but please do not alter it in any way without permission. Please like, follow, and subscribe to us on Facebook or iTunes. Visit gospelcc.com for more content like this. At Gospel Community Church, our mission is to know the Bible, share life with others, and bring hope to our city and the world. Thanks again and have a blessed day.